Ah, good time of singing. It's nice, as the minister of music, not worship leader, because worship is everything we do when we gather together, right? It's the reading, it's the praying, it's everything. But as the minister of music, I rarely get to stand next to my wife and family and sing with her. So it's kind of nice just to do that this morning. Um, but uh, let, me, uh, let me pray just to get our hearts and minds focused here uh, once again on the text that we're going to be looking at this morning. And, uh, and then we'll dive in together. Let's pray. Uh, Father in heaven, we are, are so grateful uh, this morning to come together as your children, those who have been saved by the blood of Christ, by, by his sacrifice on the cross for us. God, we, we know that we are not worthy to be called your children. We know that we uh, are not worthy uh, of that great sacrifice. And yet, uh, Christ, even as we just sang, Christ, when you uh, were in the garden praying that if there was any other way that the cup of the wrath of God would pass, uh, let it be so. And, and we saw the answer to that repeated prayer in the garden as he ended up on the cross on the cross for us. We know that the, the greatest agony that he bore on the cross, it wasn't the nails in his hands, it wasn't even the nails in his feet or the spear or uh, any, any of the physical pain that was gruesome in and of itself, but the greatest agony was the wrath of God for our sins. And so we ask as those who are grateful, unworthy, undeserving recipients of that, that as we turn to your word, uh, God re- revealed a word uh, that we would be humble under it, that we would not only be hearers of the Word, but we would be doers of the Word, that our lives would be changed to be a greater uh, reflection, uh, to be uh, more conformed into the image of our Savior, and it's in His name we pray. Amen. Uh, well, it is nice to be with you guys again uh, this morning. Um, as uh, Pastor Brandon mentioned, uh, we do have a burden on our hearts to do church planting at some time, at some point in the future. Uh, I'm from New York originally, from Manhattan, so that's where we kind of have our sights set right now in the big city. Um, and uh, so you guys could be praying for us that the Lord would allow things to come together for us to be able to uh, head up there at some point and be able to minister the gospel and uh, just be faithful and uh, start a, a healthy church up there. Um, <clears throat> I know it's interesting, uh, even as a little bit of a segue here, uh, the passage that we're going to be looking at this morning, um, it's, uh, it's good to think about how different many of our backgrounds are. Uh, it's good to think about, when, when you look around, when you look to your left, to your right, uh, there's lots of demographics represented here this morning, lots of different ages, uh, lots of different uh, cultures represented And the passage we're going to look at this morning really levels the playing field for each and every one of us. Uh, The passage we're going to look at this morning, as does the rest of God's Word, uh, reminds us that it kind of doesn't matter uh, whether we're wealthy. It kind of doesn't matter if we're rich or poor. At the end of the day, uh, there is an answer. There's one thing that each and every one of us has to do when we're faced with the call of the gospel. There's something that each and every one of us has to do when we hear the call of following Christ. And even as Phil mentioned earlier, and as we sang in uh, the song, that uh, the last song that we sang, what we have to do is to count the cost of following Christ. Each and every one of us. And we're all forced to do this because really the, the call of the gospel, the call to follow Christ is a very simple one. It's to forsake the world 
everything that you would hold on to in the world, everything that would make you who you are, everything that would make you who you were before Christ, it's to forsake all of that and follow Christ. For some, that means that they might have to give up everything that they hold dear. For some, it may mean giving up some notoriety or prominence. For others, it could be giving up uh, positions in the political world or in the business world. It could mean giving up family. It could mean giving up friends. I'm sure many here can even think of those that they have had to forsake, that they have had to break relationship with because of their decision to follow Christ because of the response to the gospel. It could mean giving up a lot of different things, but the call to follow Christ is a very simple one. Forsake the world and follow Christ. Each and every one of us must count the cost of following Christ and be willing to let go of all that, the, all that would hinder us from following Him. Again, that could be wealth, that could be popularity, that could be people, but make no mistake, the, count, the cost of following Christ is a very high one for each and every one of us. And so we have to ask why. Why, why is the cost so high to follow Christ? Well, think about what following Christ is. It's not an addition to our lives. It's not a mere appendage to the life that we have already and that we've already made for ourselves and have come to take pride in. Maybe a life that right now that, that defines us. No, we're talking about a complete replacement of all of these things. Of all the riches and notability that this world has offered you, all of it is to be let go of. We need to think about the words of Paul in Philippians chapter 3, verse 8. Paul says this, Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For His sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. And look, if you're a believer this morning and you're familiar at all with Paul and his testimony and you read that verse or you hear that verse, it's really easy to hear that and think, Amen, that's where I'm at, Paul. I'm with you. I count it all as rubbish. But at times I have to ask myself, have I really let go of everything that the world has to offer? Have I really let go of everything that I have held on to to follow Christ? Of everything that would be a distraction in my pursuit of Christ? See, it's a fair and necessary question for each and every one of us to ask. Are there things in this world that we're still holding on to that take precedence over our pursuit of following Christ? The passage we're going to look at this morning will hopefully be a reminder to you of what it truly means to count the cost of following Christ. So what is the true cost of following Christ? Turn with me in your Bibles, if you're not there already, to Matthew chapter 19, starting at verse 16. Matthew chapter 19, verse 16. The scene here is a meeting between Jesus and the young man, and the scene is going to unfold in three distinct parts. And each part, it's very interesting to note, is initiated by the young man, and it all builds up to the end in verse 22. So we're going to be looking at verses 16 through 22 of Matthew chapter 19. And again, it's, it's noteworthy to recognize 
throughout this whole interaction with this young man, it's the young man that continues to initiate each next step of this conversation, but yet you'll notice that it's not the young man who's in control. It's actually Jesus who's in control throughout this whole conversation, throughout this whole interaction. Just to set the stage a little bit for this interaction with Jesus, uh, I want to read to you verses, and, and we'll read together verses 13 through 15. Not because of what specifically is happening, but I want you to realize that Jesus is in the midst of his ministry here, and he's being bombarded by all these different people and all these different questions and accusations. And so it's helpful to see where he was immediately, immediately before this interaction with this young man. Verse 13, Then children were brought to him that he might lay his hands on them and pray. The disciples rebuked the people, but Jesus said, Let the little children come to me and do not hinder them, for to such belongs the kingdom of heaven. And he laid his hands on them and went away. You see, Jesus just finished ministering to some little children who were brought to him, and now he started back on his journey. And although he left the scene with the children at this point, it's clear that before verse 16, not much time has passed. Not much distance was gained before this man approaches Jesus. This man, you can say, was, was ready and willing. Ready and waiting. Look at how verse 16 starts. It says, And behold, a man came up to him. And behold, a man came up to him. Uh, the language that Matthew uses, behold and lo, in the Greek itself is actually a very strong emphasis demanding everyone's attention. See, Matthew wants to make it clear by, by marking down how this man approached Jesus that not only was this man ready to approach Jesus, but the, uh, the, the approach that this man took to Jesus was not a subtle approach. Mark, in the parallel uh, account of this in Mark 10, actually records this man as running up to Jesus. It's obvious that this man was not trying to be discreet. So what was it that was so important for this man to approach Jesus in this way? Now this brings us to the first part of this dialogue between this young man and Jesus, and that is the young man's pressing petition. And you'll notice three point, the three points uh, that we're going to look at this morning, they really just kind of help us uh, keep track of where we're at in this narrative, where we're at in this interaction between Jesus and this young man. So the first part is the young man's pressing petition. Verse 16, And behold, a man came up to him, saying, Teacher, what good deed must I do to have eternal life? This man had a pressing petition on his heart that he just couldn't wait to ask Jesus, what good deed must I do to have eternal life? Uh, I want you to think about how amazing this is. How much of, of a softball pitch this really is. This would be an evangelist's dream. All right? Can you imagine someone just runs up to you, maybe at work or at school, or you're just in public shopping and someone runs up to you and says, Hey, you got to tell me, what must I do to gain eternal life? Could you ask for a better setup of the gospel to tell someone, wow, that, that's an amazing question. Well, there's this God that created all things, and, and he created all things to be perfect and good, and yet man in their sin rejected him. 
live their own way, lived according to their own desires. And so what does this God do? He continues to show his mercy uh, to, to his people throughout the course of generation after generation and century after century. And man continues to reject him. And so what does God do to show grace and mercy? He sends his son to die after living a perfect life, to die on the cross for our sins, and he doesn't stay dead, and then he raises again. And what you have to do is humble yourself, humble your heart, follow this Christ, acknowledge your sin, confess your sin, live according to his ways, and because of his grace, because of his mercy, you can have eternal life. Wouldn't that be an amazing, just, that, that's what, what evangelist uh, books and workbooks should look like, right? Boom, simple interaction, one page, couple lines, it's done, closing the deal, right? This would have been a great opportunity even for Jesus to show the disciples, hey guys, watch this real quick. This guy, this guy just asked me how to get eternal life, so I want you to watch really closely. I'm going to show you how to close the deal here. Man, that would have been amazing, but... That's not what happens, right? We probably have some familiarity with this story. That's not what happens. Jesus knew that there was something else going on here. Jesus knew that there were issues in this man's heart that actually needed to be exposed. It's actually interesting and, uh, and, and somewhat mind-blowing to see Jesus instantly dissect this man's approach to him. From the very first words that come out of this man's mouth, teacher, both Mark and Luke in their Gospels, they record this man as saying, good teacher. <clears throat> See, this man either thought that Jesus was another wise and great rabbinic teacher. Maybe he even saw Jesus teaching in the synagogues at some point in his ministry. Or that Jesus had successfully figured out how to dodge uh, death itself, how to live forever, how to gain immortality. Remember, this isn't the resurrected Christ that we're talking about here, right? This is the, the Christ before his death, before his resurrection, and yet somehow he runs up to him believing that he would have the answer. <clears throat> well, there are actually two aspects of this man's view on eternal life that I think are really important um, <clears throat> that his question to Jesus heavily suggests. Two aspects that this man's view on eternal life, uh, by the question he asked Jesus, heavily suggests. One is that he thought he could earn it. He thought that he could earn eternal life. And second, he knew that he didn't have it. He thought he could earn it, and he knew that he did not have it. Thank you. It actually seems like there's a very specific act of goodness or some bit of knowledge that this man was thinking uh, would be the, the golden ticket to eternal life, as opposed to a change in how he was living, as opposed to the, the notion of giving something up in order to gain this eternal life. <clears throat> and so if this is the case, if he was after some sort of special knowledge or some special two-step program to gain this eternal life, who better to ask than Jesus Christ himself, right? The one that everyone was flocking to, to get the wisdom and knowledge that was greater than even that of the Pharisees and the scribes and all other religious leaders at that time. But this man made a grave mistake because as we know, as God's Word tells us, Jesus wasn't merely some wise teacher. Jesus wasn't merely some wise man. This man had no idea that he was approaching the very one who would look right past his question 
and right into his heart. This man came up to Jesus thinking there was only one thing that he was missing in his life, but he had it all wrong. And so how does Jesus respond to this man? Look at verse 17. And he said to him, Why do you ask me about what is good? There is only one who is good. Look, if we're honest here, if we're reading this story, and we hear the first part of Jesus' answer here, personally I think, really? That's the first thing that Jesus decides to focus on? Am I the only one who thinks that it might be a little nitpicky for Jesus to pick back on him using this word good in his petition to Jesus? I mean, is this really a time for semantics? Someone running up to you, asking for the gift, asking how to gain eternal life? No, of course not. The the reality is that Jesus wanted to immediately make one thing very clear to this man. And it's going to become more and more obvious as we see this story unfold He wanted to make it clear that this man's standard of good was not the same as God's standard of good. And not only was there only one true standard of good, but there was only one true person who could meet that standard. Little did this man know that he was actually in the middle of a conversation, of an interaction, of a discussion with the only one who is good. He was being told the source of life from the very source itself, from the very giver of life. So what is it that Jesus tells this man is the way to eternal life? How does Jesus, in his wisdom, answer this man's question? Look at how verse 17 continues. If you would have eternal life, keep the commandments. Again, if you read that, there should be some alarms going off in your mind, right? Wait a minute. If you were to enter life, keep the commandments? After all the grief that Jesus has given the religious elite and the Pharisees over trying to gain their own righteousness, to, over trying to gain a right standing before God uh, by how they lived their lives, trusting in their own efforts, this is how Jesus responds to this man? Telling him to keep the commandments? I remember a while back when uh, I was talking, I was reading this story to my kids. This was a number of years ago at this point. <clears throat> when we get to this point, I ask them, is this really how someone enters into heaven? By keeping, keep, keeping the commandments? By obeying? And I remember it was interesting to watch them because one of them said yes, the other one said no, and kind of got a maybe in there, and they were a little bit confused. That's a fair reaction to this. That's a fair reaction to that kind of question. They felt the tension that really we should all feel when we first read this response. Jesus just said that to have eternal life, the way to have eternal life is by keeping the commandments. But something's not right here. I know my Bible well enough to know that that there should be some mention of grace here. What about confessing your sins and repentance? What about belief in Christ? Just as an aside note here, MacArthur actually points out here that Jesus' response, by, by dissecting this man's heart, by even responding in this way, flies in the face of often the, the seeker-sensitive movement, that it's not about really challenging them to think, it's not about really getting to the, to the, to the depths of their heart, 
but instead it's about wanting to make get quick decisions, quick responses, point of salvation, a decision. And, and oftentimes that the, the heart of the person can be completely missed, what's actually happening in their heart. Jesus knew that he needed to dissect what was happening in this man's heart. Jesus knew that he needed to ask this man and challenge this man in very specific ways to get to the bottom of what was going on in this man's heart. See, Jesus knew that mere words are easy, but seeing your own sin and dying to it and then living a life of obedience is a very different thing. So why would Jesus, at this point, point to the commandments in response so in response to, to this man's question. I think the answer is actually very telling in the young man's response to Jesus. It takes us to the second part of this scene. The second part of this scene, the revealing response. The revealing response. All right, looking now at verse 18. So Jesus has just said, if you would enter life, keep the commandments. Look at verse 18. He said to him, which ones? That's a shocking response. We'll we'll get to that in a second here, but I want to read these couple verses uh, in context. He said to him, which ones? And Jesus said to him, you shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal, you shall not bear false witness, honor your father and mother, and you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Look, more surprising than this than Jesus' response to this man is even this man's response now to Jesus, right? Which ones? This was a very simple answer that Jesus gave to this man, and yet his response, this man's response, was so telling. One could look at this and say, well, that question seemed fair enough. At this time, the, the, the laws and rules had grown and expanded so much by the religious rulers that this man was merely trying to gain some clarity as to which commandments Jesus was actually talking about. What, what was Jesus actually telling this man to obey? But interestingly enough, the word that Jesus uses here, it's not one that refers to to Jewish traditions or or the sacrificial system. In fact, when Jesus uses this word, the Greek word is entele, when when this word is used in the Gospels by Jesus, it's never referring to a tradition, but it's referring to the specific law of God. His statutes that would have been known to his people. The law that would have been known by any Jew at that time. So either this man was thinking that there were some commandments that were more important than others, or Jesus just forced this man to slowly start to show his cards. I think Jesus was giving this man, honestly, an initial opportunity to show that he had a humble and accurate understanding of the state of his heart. But sadly enough, this man's response was not one of humility. It's kind of like when you're playing a board game with someone. I'm sure at least one person in this room has played a board game before. When you're playing a board game with someone and, and you, you start to slowly see their strategy, and you start to realize, okay, I see where you're going with this. I see where you're going with this. 
Jesus knew ahead of time already, but this man's cards start to be revealed here. This man's response was not one of humility. Instead of this man responding in a way that showed he knew this was an impossible task, he shows a complete lack of understanding of the state of affairs here. And he instead pushes for specifics. I want you to think about what James chapter 2, verse 10 says, For whoever keeps the whole law, but fails at one point, has become accountable for all of it. The equation's clear, right? If you're guilty of one, you're guilty of them all. And yet this man responded by asking, which ones, which commandments are you referring to? So Jesus uh, gives a list of specifics, listing out four out of the five last commandments. There are different commentators that try to dive into why Jesus uh, mentioned those specific commandments in and of themselves. But I I don't think that's the point here. I don't think specifically that's what Jesus... uh, I think it's important that Jesus chose those commandments, but I think really... We'll, we'll be able to see why those, because by how the man responds even to these commandments being listed. It wasn't the commandments in and of themselves, but again, Jesus continuing to dissect this man and his heart. The, respond, the response of this man is telling of what Jesus, frankly, had seen all along. In the third part of this scene, the disclosed deception. That's the third part of the scene, the disclosed deception, the young man's disclosed deception. Look at verse 20. The young man said to him, all these I have kept. What do I still lack? Look, every single person that would have been standing there during that time and every single person that would read this account any time after would know because of the depravity of man's sinful heart, that this man was not telling the truth. One preacher said this, and I found this fascinating. It's one of the things that always resounds in my mind every time I think of or or read this story. He said this, If this man was telling the truth here, then we are witnessing a conversation between the two most righteous men that have ever walked the earth. Isn't that fascinating? I remember hearing that for the first time, but I think it was my former pastor, Scott Christmas, and I just kind of stopped and realized, like, wow, that is just really minor kind of detail that's really important. If this man was telling the truth, Jesus was looking in the eyes with another man of perfection, right? Jesus should have stopped and said, wow, why am I here? You got this, man. But we know that's not the case, right? This man is revealing his heart here, and he's showing his own foolishness. He's showing how blinded he actually is to his own heart, to his own situation. Think about what 1 John 1.8 says. If we, see we, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. Think about the implications of what this man is saying. For this man to say that he kept all of these commandments was to say he never once lusted, was to say he never once took a single thing that didn't belong to him, he never once said anything that wasn't 100% truthful, he never once ever, ever, ever disobeyed or disrespected his parents, he never once thought of himself higher than anyone else at any 
point in time. Another interesting thought. If anyone around this man, if anyone watching this situation unfold, heard this man and actually believed him, this man would have had quite the following after, wouldn't he? Many would have followed him and thought, all right, we have now two righteous people here. We have two men that are perfect. Let's follow, let's, let's just pick which one we want to follow. And Jesus knew that at this point in time, it was time to make it clear to this man and those standing around him that he, that this man that he was talking to was indeed a fraud. That this man wasn't who he was claiming to be. That his heart was not in the condition that he so adamantly was trying to prove to Jesus. And so how is it that Jesus responds? What does Jesus do? Verse 21. Jesus said to him, if you would be perfect, and when you read that word perfect here, and especially many times in the, in the ministry of Jesus, he's talking about being whole, be complete. So if you would be perfect, if you would be whole, complete, go. Sell what you possess and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven, and come, follow me. Before we move on to the specifics of what Jesus does say here, the specifics of his response to this man, I want you to notice what Jesus does not say. Jesus could have taken this opportunity to show this man how truly short he falls from obeying those commandments. Jesus could have reiterated the standard of righteousness that he he taught in the Sermon on the Mount, reminding this man or teaching him maybe for the first time that to obey these commandments wasn't just outward action, but it actually had to do with what was going on in his heart. Jesus could have reminded this man of the realities of the heart disobeying these commands before any action is even taken. But Jesus had a very, very specific focus here. He was in the middle of doing open heart surgery on this man with perfect precision. Just when this man would have thought, I've got it all figured out. Just when he thought that he had Jesus right where he wanted him, what does Jesus do? Instead, Jesus shines a light right on the darkest area of this man's heart, and he exposes it. It makes sense that Mark says Jesus loved this man when responding to him. See, I've been there with my kids, and any of you that have children or have uh, loved ones, that are lost, that are rejecting Christ, or, or are believers and are living in a, a sinful pattern in their life, you know how, no matter how hard it is, it is a great love that we have for them that we expose their sin. It's heartbreaking to, 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 to help others see their depravity and make it so obvious to them, but that is true love. And it would actually... It would actually be hating our children. It would actually be hating those around us if we gave them a false assurance of where they stood before the Lord. It would be hating them if we left them blind to their sin and didn't explain to them what God's Word says about the state of their heart. We have to always keep in mind what Paul wrote in Colossians 3.6, on account of these things, the wrath of God is coming. 
We shouldn't want those around us to be under the wrath of God. But as Paul tells us in Romans 5, one, we, we want them to be at peace with God. When we encounter the lost, we must expose sin, not in order to shame them, but to help them to recognize their need through the truth of the gospel, to help them, in essence, to count the cost, to help them to see what it is that they'll have to give up to gain life, what it truly means, what it truly means to follow Christ. See, we so quickly jump to what Christ has to offer the unbeliever and completely leapfrog what it takes to follow Him. What must be let go of? Yet Jesus makes a very clear and simple statement to this man. If you want to be perfect, if you want the one thing that you know that you're missing, it's not impossible. It's not impossible, but it's going to cost you. And the cost is going to be great. In fact, it's going to cost you everything that you have. If eternal life is really what you're looking for, it's only going to be found through me, is what Jesus is saying. You're going to have to let go of everything else that you're holding on to. He tells this man to sell it all. Sell it all and give all the proceeds to the poor and follow me. He's telling this man everything that defines him, everything that you're living for, everything that you have worked so hard your whole life to accumulate must now be given up, torn down, ripped away. Forsake it all and follow me. If you could only get your eyes off the things of this world, if, if you could only release your grip from those fleeting treasures of this world, you'll be given treasure that will last an eternity. A treasure that moth and rust cannot destroy, that no robber can break in and steal, but it's going to cost you not some things, but it's going to cost you everything. And honestly, if you've been reading ahead or if you've read the story or are familiar with it, what a sad and tragic way that this interaction with Jesus ends. Look at verse 22. When the young man heard this, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. So now this man, do you remember how he walked up? Did he come up with his head laid low? Subtle? No. This man who ran up, who walked up eager to get his question answered with his head held high, excited to finally ask Jesus this pressing petition, this pressing question, is now walking away with his head hung low. He walks away sorrowful. Why? It's not because Jesus gave him an impossible task. Look, there's a reality here. This man should have walked away sorrowful and wanted to leave this conversation broken after Jesus said the only way to eternal life was to keep the commandments. That's what should have broken this man. That's the point that this man should have been thinking that eternal life was unattainable. He should have been thinking at that point, I've never, I'll never have eternal life if that's the standard. I've failed at all of those commandments. And what a precious opportunity that would have been 
for him to hear about the grace of our Lord. And he had a second opportunity after Jesus laid out which commands he was referring to, to in humility acknowledge that he was guilty on all counts. That would have been the moment to be sorrowful. When faced with the reality that he wasn't good enough, what an opportunity that would have been for this man to hear the gospel. What an opportunity it would have been for this man to show true, godly sorrow. A sorrow that would lead to repentance. Think about what Paul writes in 2 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 10. For godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief produces death. Unfortunately, it wasn't godly grief that was happening in this young man's heart. Instead, he was full of sorrow that was fueled by his own desires. It wasn't until Jesus brought it down to one simple act to do. Quite honestly, the, the simplest of the three instructions that, this gave, man, that, this, that Jesus gave to this man, and yet that is what exposed this man's heart. What was truly important to him. We know that Jesus wasn't saying that selling all of your possessions brings salvation to us. But for this man, this would have been a sure sign that he had counted the cost and wanted to indeed follow Christ. With this simple call, Christ now puts this man's heart on full display. He challenges the man publicly to do something that would have been obvious, an obvious sign of devotion to Christ that no one would have, no one would have been left wondering at this, that point if this man had actually counted the cost and turned from what he was hoping in turned from all of his worldly treasures now to Christ. But he went away sorrowful. Not because of a standard that he couldn't meet, but because he had great possessions. Because he had a bunch of stuff that would all pass away. Think about the irony of this. This is all stuff that he wouldn't have been able to bring with him into eternal life in the first place. Because he was so focused on the temporal, here and now, and could not get past that and look to eternity. That's what broke this man. He had so much wealth and riches that, and had allowed them to define him so much that the mere thought of, of eternal life at this point, when Jesus says to sell it all, lost its appeal. Turn with me to Matthew chapter 6, verse 19, briefly. Matthew six nineteen. This is in the middle. Uh, this is at an earlier time of Jesus' ministry, uh, in the middle of his teaching that's commonly referred to as the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus actually warns against this kind of devotion and love for worldly treasure. <clears throat> Matthew chapter six, verse nineteen. Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth, where moth and rust destroy, and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where neither moth nor rust destroys, and where the thieves do not break in and steal. For where your, treasures, for where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. 
The eye is the lamp of the body. So if your eye is healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light in you is darkness, how great is the darkness. No one can serve two masters. For either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. This young man that Jesus was talking about had stored up much treasure on earth. He served his money. He served his wealth. And now it's obvious that his money and his wealth had control over him. The thought of separating himself from his wealth, from his money, from his possessions, it wasn't even an option. It wasn't even a consideration. I mean, realize this. Look at this man's response. He goes away at this point sorrowful. There's no more disputing with Christ. There's no more bargaining with Christ. All bets are off. He could have responded to Jesus and say, okay, when you say all possessions, which ones are you really talking about? Like, is it all my stuff, or do I have to give it all to the poor? How long do I have to follow you? He could have continued this interaction with Jesus, but no, he immediately goes away sorrowful. All bets were off. This man counted the cost, and he deemed it too great, and sadly, he deemed the prize too low. This is a clear example of how necessary it is for our hearts to be in the right place before the Lord to be humble and contrite, to hold the things of this world very loosely. See, this man came at the right time. This man came to the right person. He even came asking the right question. But what happened when he got the right answer? It revealed the one missing part of this equation. He didn't have the right heart. Jesus pulled the veil away and revealed what this man's fingers were truly gripped around. What a foolish and sad ending to this interaction between this man and Jesus. And yet, honestly, as we read this, it begs the question for any of us here, is there anything in this life that if God were to take it away from us, that our response would make it evident that what he took away was more important to us than the gift of eternal life. More important to us than Christ. More important to us than obeying His Word. I wonder, are there things in your life, even right now, that you're not willing to let go of, even though you know that it's not compatible with the call to follow Christ? Is there anything in your life right now that you should be forsaking in your pursuit of following Christ? If you've been blessed with material wealth, what level of prominence does it take in your life? Are you using it for your own glory or for God's glory? Are you using it to serve your own comfort or to serve the needs of others? Do you have a crystal clear understanding that you can't do anything to earn eternal life? This includes doing enough ministry. This includes reading your Bible enough and praying enough. 
This includes sounding spiritual enough or sounding theologically astute enough. This includes if your kids behave well enough. Any good deed, any spiritual deed, any amount of good deeds, any amount of spiritual deeds is not enough to earn eternal life. It is only faith in Christ. It's only forsaking the world. It's only following Him. I want you to think about what this man was actually doing in interacting with Jesus in this way. In essence, he was looking at Jesus as his righteous equal. And yet, how often do we go to God as a righteous equal? See, oftentimes we're okay with God only if his ways line up with our ways. If he does things the way we think that he, that, that he should do them. We read things in our Bible. We open up the Scriptures and we come across things at times and we have a sinful thought of, is that really the best way for that, have, for that to be done? Is this really the only way of salvation? God, really? You would ask the, the Israelites to do that? You would ask your people to live in that way? You would ask the apostles to live like that, to have a life that would end in those ways? It's foolishness. It's sinful to think that way. Why? We, we can't even fathom the thoughts of God outside of His written revelation to us. His ways are higher, higher than our ways, right? His thoughts are much greater and higher than our thoughts. Another question as we think about this text, do we spend most of our time focused on eternal treasure or on temporal treasure? Is there anything that you're counting more precious than Christ himself? So I pray that as we, that as we would not walk away from this text the same way that this young man did, with sorrow because the cost to following Christ is too high, but instead that we would willingly let go of whatever God's word exposes, and that we would forsake the world, and that we would follow him. You might be reading Jesus' final interaction with this man and think, wow, that seems a little overkill. Is that really what Jesus expects this man to do to follow him? I want you to realize, although Jesus was asking this man to give up all of his worldly possessions, this pales and paled in comparison to how much Jesus gave up to save us. No amount of earthly treasure can compare with Christ's worth. No amount of human fame can ever compare with Christ's majesty. No amount of, of worldly power can ever compare with Christ's authority. And yet Jesus Christ gave all of that up to die on the cross for us. He, later on in his life, walked according to what he was teaching for others. He gave it all up to obey the Father, to purchase a people for His own possession. The reality is that Christ, in walking on this earth as a man, gave up more to save us than we can ever give up to follow Him. Let's pray. Jesus, when we stop and think about Your great sacrifice for us, 
when we think about a, a reality that, that often we uh, forget, that goes uh, on the back burner or into the background, that, that you are God, that you are eternal, that you are majestic, that you, as your word tells us, uh, have created all things and that you are even upholding all things. Uh, when we think about that reality and the, 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 the fact that you came in human form to, to live a perfect life on this earth, uh, facing much suffering and persecution and mockery, to ultimately be, be put to death in, in a brutal way, and then to, to, to withstand the weight of the wrath of God for our sins, so that we would be looked at as righteous through your sacrifice by our Father. Uh, Jesus, it, it is mind-blowing to think of how uh, of how much we hold on to our worldly treasures, of how much we hold on to that we desire in comparison to your selfless, humble love for us. And yet we are so grateful that you are a loving God toward us. Father, that you uh, look to us with compassion and mercy and grace, and that you have even laid out in Scripture uh, the great worth of following you. Uh, to, to think of the fact that one day we are going to be in glorified bodies, that we are going to be without sin, without pain, without sorrow, with nothing but joy and peace. God, that is a, a prize that, that we don't deserve. We think of the ultimate prize that we will get to bask in throughout all eternity, being face to face with Christ, the one who has given it all up for us. And so we ask that as we think through Jesus, your interaction with uh, this man centuries ago, that we would be humbled in our hearts, that we would be reminded of the things in our own lives that we are holding on to, and that we would let go of those things to follow you, because you are worth it. You are worthy of it. We pray all of this in the name of Jesus Christ, our Savior. Amen.